from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, remembering Madeleine Albright, where the sword and the cross come together. Also, right-wing gerrymandering in the fast lane in Ohio and Florida. And our regular segment on hunger and houselessness, Food Fight, with Food Not Bombs founder Keith McHenry. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast to you every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. We come to you live today from San Francisco in the Bay Area and from KPFK in the south part of California, Southern California, Los Angeles, and down. We're happy to have you all along. And, uh, well, we're going to turn our attention to Madeline Albright. All the cameras were on. All the networks were covering the remembrance that happened in Washington, D.C. And uh, we're going to remember Madeline Albright today uh, to not as emotional. We're going to remember the policy that she uh, stood for. Again, joining us to talk about this is Sam Husseini. He's just written a piece, uh, uh, Albright's Funeral, at For Albright's Funeral, The Sword and the Cross Come Together on Substack. Um, you said today Albright's policies of expanding NATO, bombing Yugoslavia, and falsely claiming that the bombing of the Chinese embassy there was not intentional helped set the stage for the extraordinarily dangerous situation now with Russia and China. Well, um, Sam Husseini, welcome to Flashpoints. Uh, maybe we should start just a little bit, say a little bit about the funeral and what wasn't talked about at all, which was a key aspect of um, Albright's policy, and that's the uh, the illegal war in Iraq. Were yeah, you surprised? Um, I, I was a couple of hours into it. I started to realize it was three-hour funeral. Said, I don't think I've heard the word Iraq. And then at the very end of it, I did a search on the uh, C-SPAN transcript, and sure enough, the word Iraq wasn't wasn't mentioned by uh, Biden, by either of the Clintons, by by anybody else who spoke, which is, you know, kind of remarkable. If you said anybody, if you told anybody that at the time in the 1990s that when Albright died, you, they wouldn't mention Iraq at her funeral. They 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 think you are crazy, but they don't want to talk about it, and and they didn't. Um, well, so thought- she didn't hesitate. She was she was asked about uh, through the years. She was asked about the policy that led to the death of what a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand children by uh, embargo and related adventures. Um, she used to talk about it all the time. She was proud of it. She'd do it again. Kill the kill the children again for the good of the policy. Well, it, it you know she did. Um, she said that um, back, I think, in 96 when she was still U.N. ambassador and she got promoted the following year when she said, that, you know, is the price worth it? Uh, half a million Iraqi children dead. And she was she said, yeah, we think it's worth it. Um, uh, the following year, when after she became secretary of state, I actually got a chance to question her briefly at the press club. And she claimed that she didn't remember saying it. And I said, no, I, I've heard it. 
Um, and then she was like, well, you can't guilt trip me about that. Uh, it's all Saddam's fault. And then they cut off my attempts to do any follow-ups. And in the years since, um, she said, uh, you know, you know, totally hyperbolic. Um, you know, I've apologized a thousand times for that, but it's not clear what she's apologizing for. She's apologizing for the policy. I don't, there was no indication she was apologizing for the policy. She was apologizing for saying something like that so crassly. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, some people have quibbled with the numbers and things like that. The, 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 the policy, though, is really the heart of it, because a crucial thing that Albright did was to continue the Bush administration policy of maintaining the sanctions regardless of what Saddam Hussein did, even if he w was verifiably disarmed. Um, you know, and throughout the 1990s, these inspectors were going in constantly um, uh, to Iraq. And uh, it, it was, when, the, when she came before the U.S. public, she would pretend that if only Saddam Hussein complied and disarmed, we could move on. But when she was actually setting policy in her policy statements at Georgetown and elsewhere, she would say, we are resolute in our determination to maintain the sanctions until Iraq proves its peaceful intentions. Or she would set up some other, you know, criteria that was completely unattainable where, where you know, the, the U.S. gets to be judged during executioner. It, people might remember it, interestingly enough, that the militarists started bailing on this. Scott Ritter, um, you know, was, you know, trying to knock down doors in Iraq and, um, Eventually, she was interfering in that process because she wanted him to knock down doors at a certain time to, to suit their political calendar, uh, the Clinton administration's political calendar. And he didn't do that. He was being, you know, a Marine and just saying, this is my schedule. This is when I'm going to knock down doors. Um, and so he broke with them, you know, set, set thinking initially his initial statements were saying, oh, she's covering up for Saddam. But, the, you know, eventually it dawned on Ritter what was actually going on, that they were going to maintain the sanctions no matter what. And ultimately this destroyed the inspections regime because the Iraqis had no incentive to comply. And uh, Ralph Achaeus, the first head of the inspections regime, you know, said so eventually that, that, that the U.S. destroyed the inspections regime by not abiding by the UN resolutions. The UN resolution said, once Iraq complies with the weapons inspectors, the sanctions will be lifted. The US violated that. It created a disincentive for the Iraqis to comply. That was a, it was a very subtle, but a very major um, policy thing because it kept the sanctions in place throughout the 1990s and effectively made an, an eventual invasion inevitable because there was actually, you know, kind of no other way you could resolve all of this. Uh, it, was, it was a very subtle but very horrific policy that she that she maintained from the first Bush administration. We are speaking with Sam Husseini. Uh, he's communications director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. He writes uh, for many uh, wonderful sources. He's got a new piece, The Sword and the Cross, uh, uh, come together and it's on Substack and we're talking let's focus on I mean we're we're watching this war unfold in Ukraine now 
We're watch. We're hearing things now that uh, Finland's considering becoming part of NATO. Um, let's talk about Madeleine Albright. Uh, she played a key role in expanding NATO, uh, and this happened in the context of uh, some pretty vicious bombing in Yugoslavia uh, that included the bombing of the Chinese embassy there. You want to talk about um, Madeleine Albright and, and that policy, Yugoslavia, and then the expansion of NATO? Absolutely. The, the bombing of Yugoslavia was... Um you know, at the time, I, I didn't fully buy into it. I mean, a lot of people, Edward Herman, um, uh, Diana Johnstone, and some other people were Michael affected. Parenti. Yeah. Was Michael Parenti yeah. as well? I, I, I wasn't fully aware of that. Yes. That's, that that's interesting. Um, uh, D- David Gibbs at the University of Arizona were arguing that this was, you know, just to juice up NATO. Um and I was, I, I saw that, and I did some work on it at the time, but I didn't fully buy into it. But I think, in retrospect, it's quite clear um, they tremendously exaggerated the humanitarian toll of what was happening in Kosovo, um, and they um, th- there were peace talks going on at a castle in France called Rambouillet, and the U.S. delegation inserted this appendix, uh, you know, after, you know, they reached an agreement and the Serbs didn't like the agreement, um, uh, but they were willing to go along with it. And then the U.S. inserted this appendix, Appendix B of Rambouillet, which basically said, and by the way, NATO gets to occupy Yugoslavia. You know, NATO personnel will have free and unfettered access throughout the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, full use of the electromagnetic spectrum, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the Serbs balked at that and said no. And then that was used as a pretext to say, oh, the Serbs rejected this agreement, and so we have to bomb. Um, it was it was a setup. Um, and, uh, you know, some personnel from the State Department, uh, this guy Kenny, um, came out later and talked about it and talked about how journalists were sort of in on it and pledged to secrecy about what was actually going on here. Um, so that was what triggered the bombing. The bombing was extremely reckless. They, they, they bombed all kinds of facilities. They, they bombed, they, they, they tossed so many bombs that they actually hit neighboring countries. They hit Bulgaria, um, and they hit Albania, um, um, and the the, the, the real uh, most insidious target was the Chinese embassy. Uh, when it was alleged that it was intentionally bombed, the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, the, the capital of Yugoslavia, Serbia, um, uh, Albright said that's balderdash, um, that, that it was intentional. But there was an investigation by the British uh, uh, newspaper, The Observer, uh, that cited several sources, inside sources, saying, yeah, it was intentional. Um, now, the reason that was given in the Observer piece was um, that uh, apparently there were allegedly things in the Chinese embassy, and the Chinese embassy was used to relay, as a relay station for radar. Uh, there were a couple of different allegations about that. 
what, what I did was I looked at the timing of what was going on there. And what was striking was the day before the Chinese embassy was bombed, um, there was a lot of movement at the UN and the US and the Russians had a, agreed to some kind of process to end the conflict, um, uh, apparently. That was the media reporting at the time. But the Chinese hadn't yet signed on to it. Um, and so that was the, the, the speculation um, in the 24 hours before the bombing of the Chinese embassy. And then the Chinese embassy was bombed. So obvious question, which no one, to my knowledge, has seriously investigated, was, was were those two things connected? Was, was the fact that... Uh, and this had a tremendous effect in China because they, they felt, obviously, their sovereignty had been infringed and that they became you know, um, more militaristically inclined. You also had a similar effect in Russia. Uh, people might recall at the time, Yeltsin was the president and he was warning of World War III. Now, Yeltsin was very pro-American, went along with a lot of U.S. economic policies and so on. Um, he, f five days after the bombing of Yugoslavia started, he elevated Putin to uh, head their foreign policy committee, their main foreign policy committee. Uh, a couple of months after that, he named him uh, prime minister. And by the end of the year, uh, Yeltsin uh, stepped down and named Putin acting president. Uh, now, there, there are a lot of different factors, and Russia is obviously a complicated country. But it seems to me that, um, if anything, the bombing of Yugoslavia sort of pushed the Russians to say we can't have somebody who's a complete U.S. pushover like Yeltsin was um, at the helm here. Um, and, and so I think that that was a, a substantial factor in, in the rise of Putin. And, and, I, and I understand for, from people who are following the Russian press, he's admit he said as much on, on, on occasion. Um, yeah, uh, I believe. And the Clintons, uh, somewhere along the line, uh, they took... Uh, early on in the process, uh, they were, uh, they were like many. They were inclined to really support Putin. He was, he was the one they all wanted. Is um, that your understanding? Uh, uh, I, I think that they were accepting of him, and I saw some indications that the British were very happy with him initially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't positive if that was the actually stated policy of of the United States. That's that's interesting. Got to dig uh, on that it, a little it, bit more, but yeah, go on. I'm sorry. No, uh, no, uh, that's please go ahead. No, no. Well, um, ta so this policy, you know, that we're talking about now, was really the part of the expand NATO big time policy right. and this this was uh madeline albright's baby right yeah she was yeah. a key mover and shaker talk about that yeah and this is really kind of the most obvious point it, it it's so glaring and it's so i mean the fact that she died um you know a month ago in the midst of this current war uh in ukraine that you know there's such a substantial case to be made that nato expansion uh, provoked um, uh, Russia in many ways. A after the 
after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Soviet Union collapsed, and then the Warsaw Pact was disbanded, and uh, NATO, um, the U.S. pledged that NATO wouldn't move one inch eastward. Um, you know, that, that was sort of in the process of German reunification. Um, Baker uh, pledged that to Gorbachev. Um, they immediately started reneging on it in small ways, and then by the time uh, Clinton and Albright are in office, they go big time and they bring in country after country in Eastern Europe, going up to the border of Russia. Um, incredibly provocative. Uh, you know, the, the, the Russians continuously warned that this was bad. A lot of the U.S. establishment warned that. I mean, Kennan, the, the um, you know, uh, the, the godfather of you know Soviet containment strategy, warned about this um uh, but they in, insisted albright and company um you know pledging that this was a way to stabilize europe in the 21st century you know that was their you know tagline when they had the signing ceremony with clinton signing it and albright uh, looking over his shoulder um and and now we have the current situation where uh you know the you know, the, the Russian fear that Ukraine would now, not not just Poland and all of these other East European countries, the Baltic states, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, would join NATO, but now even uh, Ukraine uh, would, would join NATO. I think that that uh, effectively provoked it. You know, I think we can draw a distinction between justifying and provoking, but I think clearly uh, the Russians felt extremely provoked by this and some other moves. Um, in in terms of the the current um, the current conflict, so I think that it was, you know, people say, you know, was it a mistake to expand NATO? And I'm like, well, what do you mean by mistake? I mean, you, you can have an insidious policy. <laughs> it's it's not a mistake, but it's it's meant to provoke. And and the parallel for this, you know, is um, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was Albright's mentor. Um, you know, he boasted years later that you know, he got Jimmy Carter to arm the Afghan fighters in May of 1979, uh, more than six months before the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. You know, people think about Charlie Wilson's war and, uh, you know, Reagan arming the Mujahideen and so on. It was actually Brzezinski uh, under Carter who did that, who, who, who got the, the, that started and helped provoke, again, a similar pattern uh, that we see over and over again. Um, uh, Brzezinski boasted that he provoked uh, the Soviets into invading Afghanistan. He felt um, accelerating the demise of the Soviet Union, which he was very proud of, um, and, you know, arming a bunch of jihadis was... No, no big deal to him. Um, and then we saw a similar pattern with Albright effectively provoking um, the Serbs to walk out of the talks at Rambouillet, forcing that war. And then a similar pattern with expanding NATO, ultimately provoking Russia in the current conflict. I, I think that, it, I mean, Albright, I, I mean, she wasn't really an innovator, but she continued a nefarious set of policies at a critical time. 
um, that, you know, could have seen a break from that with, you know, the end of the Cold War and so on. And, you know, she shattered that and set the stage very much for the Bush administration so that after 9-11, you, you, you know, you could have, you know, full scale invasions of, of Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, you had uh, three presidents, vice president, all kinds of folks celebrating uh, Madeleine Albright and her legacy. The general sense was that she was uh, empowering for women who uh, and was quite encouraging in terms of uh, mentoring uh, young women uh, that uh, among uh, her legacies also were the her success in Yugoslavia, what's, if, how would you sum up her legacy? Um, that, that she continued an extremely aggressive militaristic stance of U.S. policy. Um, it, it's certainly, you know, true that she was the first female secretary of state and Obama was the first black president and so on. But, I mean, it kind of shows the limitations of, you know, simple gender and ethnic Diversity. I mean, if you're going to have a system that, you know, encourages people who are, you know, manipulative, realistic and, um, uh, you know, you know, you know, ambitious in the worst sense of the word, um, the fact that you have different genders and so on, uh, it, it, I, I don't think that's that's going to, you know, really change the dynamics much as a matter of fact, you, you could make an argument, you know, I mean, Clinton, d during this entire period of much of the period of the Iraq wars and bombings in the second part of the Clinton administration and the Yugoslavia war, Clinton had his um, uh, sex scandals. And I think that it, in effect, facilitated the war making to have a female secretary of state and you know, Clinton sort of took refuge in that, uh, you know, uh, he, he bombed, you know, Sudan and um, Afghanistan just before the Monica Lewinsky uh, testimony to the grand, to her grand jury in August of 1998. And then December, well, I should say at the beginning of 1998, they were about to bomb. Um, you had Albright uh, William Cohen and Sandy Berger go to Ohio State and try to make the case to bomb Iraq. And there was virtually a, you could call it an intifada in Ohio. You had all of these people standing up and, you know, uh, protesting and asking tough questions of the policy. And between that and Kofi Annan going to Iraq and brokering a deal, they had to back off. Um, and then eventually they bombed just before Clinton's impeachment in December of 1998. And then after his, you know, Senate trial, it, it was a completely damaged presidency. I mean, people, you know, governors wouldn't meet with Clinton at that point. And it was the bombing of Yugoslavia uh, with Albright at the helm that sort of restored you know, what, you know, Washington calls credibility and uh, gravitas uh, to the administration. Wow. So Clinton sort of embraced militarism as a way of advancing his own political career. So you had a very, you know, twisted um, symbiotic relationship going on there uh, between between Clinton and Albright, effectively. That is the voice of San Husseini. 
Uh, he has just written the piece, The Sword and the Cross Come Together. It's up at Substack. Uh, Sam is communications director at the Institute for Public Accuracy, and his articles appear widely. Sam Husseini, we appreciate you taking the time out to be with us on Flashpoints. Stay safe. Thank you so much. All right. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, well, gerrymandering, redistricting, whatever you want to call it, uh, taking place at a breakneck speed at the moment in Ohio and Florida. We're going to talk about that. Stay with us. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We turn our attention to, well, uh, the multiple ways that the Republicans are um, uh, now operating full time to steal elections, uh, make sure they do not lose any more elections uh, by being foolish and allowing people to vote. Uh, joining us uh, to talk about this is Harvey Wasserman. Uh, he does a a very special uh, Monday. I, I think of it as a, a voter fight back teaching. Uh, we're going to tell you a bunch about that. We're going to talk about what is going on in terms of um, uh, Ohio and Florida in the fast lane for um, undermining people's right to vote. Harvey, welcome back to Flashpoints. It's always great to be with you, Dan. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, this ain't looking good, though, uh, for Ohio <laughs> and Florida. You want to try and explain to people uh, what is happening there? Yes. Uh, both, both Ohio and Florida have had referenda where the public has weighed in and to- said it clearly wants an end to gerrymandering and it wants competitive districts. Like we have in California, Dennis, uh, we we have probably the best uh, districting system in the country in California, where we do have competitive races and and bipartisan uh, attempts to uh, hold on to the government. But in uh, in Ohio, where people twice voted in favor of referenda to uh, rationalize the districting system and avoid gerrymandering. The Republican House, which is gerrymandered, and, and the, the state house, the state senate and the state legislature, uh, jumped in and have completely torn apart 
the system set up by the public so that they could gerrymander uh, the state. Now, a, a funny thing happened on the way to the gerrymander. They sent the, the maps, which were completely uh, bogus, up to the Ohio Supreme Court um, uh, by due course. And uh, everyone expected the court to vote four to three uh, on party lines to approve these maps. But a, a brave woman named Maureen O'Connor, the Republican chief justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, threw out the maps not once, not twice, not three times, but four times and told these people uh, who have taken control of the district and commission to do a decent set of maps. They are still refusing to do that, and they have found a way to circumvent the court. And so at this point in time, it looks like Ohio, which has 15 congressional seats, is instead of being 8 to 7 or 9 to 6, uh, which you would expect, it's going to be more like 12 to 3 or even 13 to 2. So uh, without even a vote being cast, uh, the Democrats have lost four or five uh, seats in the, in the U.S. House. Now, a similar thing is happening in Florida. Again, the, the public has spoken and wants an end to gerrymandering. But the governor, who is not legitimately elected, by the way, this guy Ron DeSantis, uh, he's in power because the legislature overrode a public referendum uh, allowing ex-felons to vote. They found a way around that. So there are now 27 seats in Florida, and they are likely to go, you know, 25, 24 uh, seats to the Republicans because the state has been, again, completely gerrymandered. So between Ohio and Florida at this point in time, you have a shift from the popular vote to the uh, corrupted gerrymandered vote uh, of as many as 20 seats in the U.S. House, which is more than enough to flip the government. And uh, this is just the gerrymandering in two states. It's horrendous. And uh, to that has been added actually today, within a few hours ago, well, the Democrats have done their own gerrymandering and in New York, and they set up a map uh, that would have been about uh, probably 22 to 4, which is, you know, 80% in a state that's maybe 60-40 at most, Democrat to Republican. And, uh, and the, the, they got fairer districts in New York, uh, which is going to cost the, the Democrats some, still some more seats. So um, it's just a complete mess, Dennis. And we can be proud as Californians that the, the maps in California are done in a pretty reasonable way. But the rest of the country, forget about it. It's a complete nightmare. And the Democrats are completely losing. Uh, as I say, between Florida and Ohio, they may have lost as many as 20 seats in the U.S. House. Now, uh, speaking of Ohio, uh, there's a, a very important race going on there, but the problem is there are no districts. Uh, yeah. Could you uh, untangle that for us? Uh, yeah, talk well, about uh, I mean, uh, what is going on there, because it it seems to me, you know, that this is this sits outside the Constitution. This whole system of voting, it is extraordinary how uh, the founding people had certain ideas and uh, had uh, perceived certain things in a very uh, clear way to anticipate the future. But this 
gerrymandering and both by Democrats and Republicans really calls into question, uh, along with the electoral system, whether we really do have uh, a democracy. Well, we don't. I mean, it's very clear. Um, you know, the British had a representative parliament for centuries that was completely corrupted. Uh, the, 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 the white founders, you know, I consider the indigenous to also be founders of this country. A lot of them actually don't like that idea, but the, the reality is that um, and indigenous ideas were uh, a part of the founding. Uh, in terms of the 55 white guys who got together in Philadelphia to draw up the Constitution, they did not foresee a party that was devoted to fascism uh, the way the current Republican Party is. And they did not um, really take account into the idea that a, a, a juggernaut like this could come about. Our, our democracy is being completely bulldozed, bulldozed by a very focused right-wing party and a very uh, wimpy, weak, uh, corrupted uh, left, so-called left-wing party to the point that we really are on the brink of losing our democracy. And um, ironically, the term gerrymander comes from a, uh, the governor of Massachusetts in 1812, who was a Jeffersonian, allegedly a liberal, um, uh, who came up with the idea of, of screwing around with the, um, uh, the districts the way they did. The term gerrymander comes from his name, Eldridge Jerry, uh, combined with uh, the districts he drew up, which people said looked like salamanders. That's where the term gerrymander comes from. Uh, and it is rampant now in this country, and the Democrats, it's also happening in Maryland, where the Democrats are doing the gerrymandering, and in Kansas, where the Republicans are doing gerrymandering, but we have utter chaos. You know, chaos is always a precursor to a fascist state, and in Florida, which decided the 2000 election for George W. Bush uh, illegitimately, and in Ohio, which gave him a re-election in 2004, again illegitimately, you, you have enough uh, 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 gerrymandered districts being uh, taken from the Democrats by the Republicans before a vote has been cast to really uh, flip the whole House of Representatives. That's how bad it is. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We're speaking with Harvey Wasserman. We're talking about gerrymandering at the moment. Uh, Harvey, tell people again uh, about your Monday uh, teachings. That's what I'm calling it. Uh, uh, how? What are you doing on Mondays? Uh, what do you discuss there, and why should people get involved? Well, people who want to get involved can write me directly, solartopia at Gmail, and I will send you a free PDF of my new People's Spiral of U.S. History. And we have between 60 and 100 dentists. People come join us uh, starting at 2 p.m. Pacific time uh, on Mondays, uh, and we discuss in-depth very serious uh, issues having to do with our election. It's basically an election protection call. We have people from the League of Women Voters, from uh, Our Revolution, from Common Cause, the Brennan Center, from all over the the map in terms of experts, the Carter Center, we had Jennifer Roberts uh, this week, um, uh, who are involved in protecting our elections and understanding exactly how they happen. We also now have expanded with the Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition, and we deal very strongly with uh, environmental issues as well, especially the attempt in California now to kill solar energy <clears throat> at the same time the Christi uh, the um, 
uh, Romero Institute has put forward a, a bill to turn California 100% green. So these these dynamics are also dealt with. <clears throat> you know, this attempt to kill rooftop solar nationwide is a very big deal, and we are uh, dealing with that as well. <clears throat> we consider energy democracy, renewable energy, to be uh, right alongside political democracy. And uh, so those two are in on our calls, Dennis. Uh, again, they start at 2 p.m. on Mondays. Write me directly, uh, Solartopia at Gmail, and I'll I'll put you into the loop. But uh, you are a great participant, and we we take questions, we have dialogue, <clears throat> we don't allow personal attacks. What a relief that is, and uh, we we deal with the issues as they come. And we did play a very significant role. We linked up uh, the Center for Common Ground with the NAACP in Georgia in 2021 and and did play a role in the Georgia miracle that elected two U.S. senators to the uh, uh, from the Democratic side in, in Georgia. But we are nonpartisan, so uh, we, we take care to do that. One of our heroes, actually, at least on the election issue, is Arnold Schwarzenegger, who did help us get gerrymandering. So it, we're all over Actually, this coming week, we're going to have a Republican from Arizona talk about the fiasco that went on there. And again, we had people who played a significant role in um, uh, sorting out the mess in Arizona and ending us up with actually a much better electoral system in Florida and in, in Arizona in many ways than most of the rest of the country as well. So very hands-on, Dennis, and we believe that people not only have a right and an ability, but an actual duty to protect our elections. And, and um, we've gotten to the point now we're almost to 100 calls. We've been doing this over, over two years uh, where we've got a pretty good idea what's going on with our electoral system. It's not easy to sort out. And uh, we know it's not good, and we need to f- compete, keep working to protect whatever democracy we have left. Well, it's very important work. Uh, those Monday meetings where, uh, as you say now, about 100 people come together to take on this issue in terms of protecting the vote. Uh, or election protection work is crucial uh, in our time. I want, before we let you go, I just have a minute or two left. I want to come back. Why is rooftop solar a frontline issue. Say that one more time. Why is? Because it just sounds like a Monday rooftop solar. You put the thing up there, and that's that. But that means you control your energy the same way you control your vote. You don't. Have, you don't need PG&E. They are desperate to stop solar energy, solar energy from coming uh, on the rooftops. Uh, they're not. They don't care that much about the big desert arrays, the, the giant industrial uh, windmills, which I support. But nonetheless. Uh, because the corporations can control that. But if you have a, a solar panel on your rooftop, you control your own energy. You don't need, especially with batteries now and electric cars, which actually serve as batteries, you don't need the big corporations. And that's what they're terrified of. So rooftop solar is actually like the ballot. It gives you control over your political destiny and your and your economic destiny in this case. And so, uh, and again, People want to join us and hear more about this. We're going to a major presentation on renewable energy uh, this coming Monday to join our democracy stuff. Write me at uh, Solartopia at Gmail. I'll send you a PDF of the people's spiral of U.S. history. And uh, we, we, we are making progress. Dennis. We have the technology to have, not only, we have, fair, to have fair elections. 2020 was actually the fairest election, presidential election in U.S. history because we had paper ballots. 
paper ballots are kind of the equivalent of solar panels, and that's that, that's really where it's at. All right. Uh, that is uh, our good friend Harvey Wasserman, Solitopia all the way. Harvey, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. I'll see you at the meeting. Yes, it's great to have you on, Dennis. We really appreciate it. All right. Be safe. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to return to Keith McHenry uh, with our regular segment about houselessness and uh, hunger. It's called Food Fight. Coming up, stay with us. on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. And we are joined now uh, by Keith McHenry. He's the founder of Food Not Bombs. The segment, uh, we call it Food Fight with Keith McHenry. It's about uh, the battle uh, against, uh, the growing battle against houselessness uh, and hunger in this country. Keith, welcome back to Flashpoints. Things yeah, are not, uh, well, it's good to have you, but things are not getting any better uh, in the streets. There are more people in the streets, there are more hungry people, and there's uh, less food to feed them, and it's more expensive to get it. You want to give us sort of an update? It's been a little while since we've spoken. Yeah, the you know, we are seeing, and this has been the case for months now, but every month it's even worse, that we make... Uh, even more food than we had, you know, the days before, and we still run out. So we had, in one case, we normally share from noon to 3, and we ran out in 20 minutes. And that was uh, earlier in the week. So that is very dire. And then the other thing that is happening here in Santa Cruz, which is happening all across the country, but the specific uh, case here is that the city is going to announce on May 10th their plans to drive the homeless out of the uh, benchlands, which about 400 people are living there now, into doorways and, and uh, into the parks and so on, with no solution. So that when you see that the Biden administration can hand out $800 million in lethal aid one week after another to Ukraine, but we can't house our people 
in the United States, and he is announcing that because of sanctions, uh, that there could be food shortages, and we're already seeing food shortages. And the other crazy thing is the amount of, uh, like here in Salinas, which is one of the places we get food, Taylor um, uh, Produce Packing Company burned completely to the ground. And there's apparently uh, 16 food packing plants, processing plants that have burned in the last two months, completely to the ground. Um, And then there's problems with the droughts and you know, in the Midwest here in the U.S. And, and um, you know, so it is getting dire. And then gas prices going up and rents going up. And there is nobody in government at city, county, state, or federal that's proposing any actual real solutions to ending homelessness. And the U.S. is, uh, you know, Biden administration's current military budget has um, – $38 billion to modernize the nuclear arsenal just for this year. And HUD says that that's the amount, uh, Housing and Urban Development says that's the amount that it would take to house all the homeless people in the country. So we're just like building nuclear weapons instead of uh, housing our people. And, uh, you know, we've got the largest military budget. And there's no, like, oversight or whatever. Just all these weapons that are going to Ukraine are just, uh, there's no accounting for where they ultimately go and it's very much similar to oh you know iraq and afghanistan and other past wars where we dump massive amounts of uh, lethal weapons into uh, a community where killing the local people and at the same time you know losing track of the weapons that we are are sending there so and i'm also very concerned about a possibility of a nuclear exchange you know like my grandfather was an, in the Office of Strategic Services in Burma, and he directed Operation Meeting House, which he claimed uh, bur- burned over a million uh, civilians to death in Tokyo. And I used to watch him argue with McNamara and, uh, uh, and uh, Curtis LeMay, Robert McNamara, demanding that they drop the atomic bomb on Hanoi to uh, send a message to the Soviet Union and to China that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not anomalies, that uh, we are crazy enough as a country that we'll do it again. And we can see now that uh, Newland's, uh, uh, Victoria Newland's husband, uh, Robert um, uh, Kagan, has been writing, as well as others in the Brookings Institute and so on, about the need to man up and get over this fear of nuclear war and... Um, so you know, that that I find is really disturbing that we that that's happening, and that's I think one of the reasons that Code Pink and Food Not Bombs and Beyond War and, and all of us are calling on a May 7th, Saturday May seventh protest across the country um, against the possible escalation of the war and calling for withdrawal of Russian troops and detente instead of um, shipping endless weapons into Ukraine while we're you know. It's, you know where we really need to be funding housing, education, and healthcare here in the U.S. if we want to be secure. But it's falling apart. I mean, this country is. You know, so you, you wonder whether it's just they're so myopic that they just want, you know, the profits of war is all they are considering, or are they uh, blind to the fact they're destroying the United States and the people of the country? You know, it's just it's really outrageous. 
Uh, is there a, do you have a branch of Food Not Bombs in Ukraine, in the region? Or what's the situation like on the ground? Have you been hearing? Well, we cannot reach any. We have seven groups in Ukraine, or we did before the war. Um, and we had them in the Donbass region as well as in the, in the West. Um, and uh, um, we did get uh, correspondence with them before, um, well, actually shortly after the uh, trade union hall in Odessa was burnt, that uh, that they were frightened of this uh, um, after the coup that the rise of nationalists were a threat to them. And as uh, people are probably aware, like gay, lesbian, uh, transgender protests were violently attacked by them. Roma and homeless people were attacked by C-14, which was a Nazi group hired by the uh, uh, city of Kiev to uh, run their police department and so on. So that's the, the last that we really heard from them. Now on the border in Poland, there is a massive uh, refugee crisis. Unfortunately, there's a lot of aid coming there, and we've had some support, for instance, from an organization called the Well-Fed World, who have been donating money to the chapters in Poland to handle the, the food crisis there. And um, we're getting, you know, new. that's even starting to, you know, the refugee crisis expanding across um, Europe at this point. And then we have groups in both Poland and Bulgaria, and uh, they're cutting, uh, Russia is apparently cutting off uh, access to gas to those two countries. And so we're concerned what that might um, impact the local chapters there. And then our Russian chapters, um, we did get video of the Moscow food bombs getting arrested. And we have a number of people that have been sentenced to five years or greater in Belarus um, for their participation in food not bombs. So um, that's kind of the the sphere of what's happening around that conflict. And and it does seem like it's expanding. You know, the, the apparently sabotage of uh, of oil facilities in Russia and in uh, and then in neighboring countries, um, you know, Moldova, and that's very concerning. So I, I you know, what, that's. You know, we're like not only trying to handle the crisis here, it's just outrageous. I handed out the last of my tents that I was able to afford this month, and, and then two more people want tents, and it's just heartbreaking not to be able to give them a tent. And uh, and now they're going to start the suites of the parks, um, the, the main place people are living sometime in July, and there's no plan to do anything for these people, but we've got all this money for war. So the the message of food not bombs, I think at this point in history, could not be more important. And I just, uh, I really am hoping that, that the particularly the American people start going, okay, yeah, we need to spend our resources on things like food. You know, to have food shortages, um, you know, we have problems, you know, this uh, Taylor, uh, processing plant in Salinas is where we were getting a lot of our fresh vegetables through Second Harvest Food Bank and uh, you know that entire property was burned to the ground and and so you know so there's like disruptions at every level as well as food prices going up not only just because well the you know the blockade on on, uh, on fertilizers that's happening from Russia and the um, you know and, and then the, the you know Droughts across the West, and 
and all these things are kind of, are a perfect storm. Um, and uh, it, you know, and and then just the transportation prices of uh, shipping food is you know out out of this world with gas prices being so high. So we're being squeezed as a as a people, and somehow we need to you know organize and 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 push back and uh, um, demand that you know force the situation through some kind of campaign of nonviolent direct action where we. Um, uh, um, you know, to you know, push back on this whole crisis. Now, in Santa Cruz last night, there was a city council meeting that a bunch of people, uh, to my surprise, showed up at. And we, um, they have passed a law yesterday afternoon, uh, essentially banning food not bombs from serving food downtown um, at the clock tower, which is where we've been serving food. What's and the justification for that, Keith? You 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 have oh. demonstrated for years, forever, that the work you do is about life-saving, it's about life and death, it's about really coming to the uh, rescue of people who are finding themselves out there for the first time. Why are they going after you, Keith? Why? Well, they're, they're claiming that um, there's been trash left there. So, but there is never any trash left there. Um, in fact, I know you guys are. You guys take care of business. I know that. Yeah, yeah. And we're we're there at noon. We leave at, um, by four with the whole place cleaned up. Um, it's now, like I say, about two hundred people coming to that meal. There's another four hundred getting groceries from us in the benchlands, and another five hundred people getting uh, undocumented uh, individuals getting food from us. So, and and we are the food basically in Santa Cruz. So it is it's outrageous that they would would um, come up with this. It's as part of a number of restrictions on protest, in fact. And now, in this case of uh, of the. A town clock, they're going to start charging us apparently with misdemeanors for for serving food there. Um, we're, we're, you know, and so, you know, which, which was uh, I guess not the case before. And you know, it is it's outrageous. And people last night were pointing out that you know there would have been. In fact, there was a public health nurse, retired public health nurse that worked for the uh, county of Santa Cruz, pointing out that there. If it wasn't for food not bombs, there would have been much more shoplifting, crime, uh, desperation. There would have been, uh, you know, potentially even looting uh, if people went for seven now seven hundred fifty days without food. That you can't expect that to to you know not cause huge ramifications. So we essentially saved the city from having much worse problems uh, during the pandemic than they would have had otherwise, and yet then we're. You know, then they're harassing us and actually spending energy passing a law to drive us away from a public space. It, it's um, pretty outrageous. So you found founded Food Not Bombs 40 years ago, right? Is that right? Uh, 42 years ago. We'll be on May 24th. It will be the 42nd year that um, I've been doing Food Not Bombs. That you've been that you've been really doing life and death work. How many times have you been beaten for doing this work, Kif? Can you count? Can well, you remember? I know I was a, uh, well <laughs> quite a number of times. So there's three times where 
I was captured by the San Francisco police, I believe, although it's not totally clear. And I had my ligaments and tendons ripped, and I was placed in a stress physician cage for three days each of those times. Uh, today, I've been suffering with my face hurting because I was clubbed between the eyes at the Rodney King uprising and had two surgeries to repair that. I was attacked by vigilantes connected to the San Francisco police on 14 occasions. Um, and I've been beaten a number of other times just uh, randomly on on the streets while serving food. And I did 500 days, according to the district attorney, for serving food in San Francisco. And then I did uh, 18 days in Orlando for feeding people in, in uh, Lake Yola Park there. And uh, I think I'm away over like... Uh, um, like nearly two years total of, of county jails um, for mostly for feeding people, but occasionally for, like I did a weapons inspection with a bunch of friends at uh, Raytheon in Tucson years ago when the, um, you know, when the uh, Scott Ritter and them were doing weapons inspections in Iran. So uh, mostly it's just been for serving free food. Um, it's always been for, um, in, Except for early on when I was a youngster, always for uh, basically protesting so or, or for standing up for the rights of people on the streets. And, uh, yeah, and it, it's, it's just it's so beautiful, the people that are on the streets that we're working with and hanging out with and the, our families and friends. It's just the, 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 the dignity and ability to withstand this. It's just tragic living outside. And in the end, and uh that fear of become, you know, I can just, you know, I think many of us have been there where you put your debit card in the in the ATM, hoping that there's actually going to be money coming out. And just, right? You know, that, did it come? That. Did that check come through? Right? Or yeah, am I in trouble? Um, well, Keith, we're out of time. But if people want more information, if they want, if they're interested in joining your struggle, how can people get in touch? Yeah, they can go to foodnotbombs.net, and that's where you can also call on the Hunger Hotline, 1-800-884-1136, or email us, menu at foodnotbombs.net. But you can find all that contact information um, there. And we are, like you say, we're still trying to raise money for tents because it's just heartbreaking, the amount of new people moving to the street. So anybody wants to contribute to that or to send us tents or hook us up with tents, um, People are, are just crying out for, okay. for that. Thank you so Thank much, you, Dennis. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. And uh, we're just against the clock, uh, so we're gone. Talk to you tomorrow.